0: We're going to turn in our Bible study to Genesis chapter twelve and continue there. In our study of the faithfulness of God in the life of Abraham, I was thinking as we were singing those songs, when we see people in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, even in Revelation, when they see a bit of the glory of God, a bit of the glory of God, what happens? Things like falling face first. Things like their mouth being shut, like for them. like They have no control to, as if to open it up to speak again, right? The angels even cover their eyes and their feet in the midst of and the presence of the glory and holiness of God. Isn't that amazing? Uh, We serve a holy God, a big God. We're going to see that today in this passage as well. Uh, Now, sometimes people will ask, have ever been asked this before? If your house were to catch on fire, and you could only grab one thing, because that's going to ever happen, right? And you could only g- grab one thing on your way out, what would it be? This is obviously assuming, of course, all the people are out, okay? And possible answers that people might say, their dog, <laughs> their cat, for some reason. Uh, maybe... Some sort of family heirloom, something that's precious to your family, or maybe some people would say their Bible, or whatever the case may be, they would try to pick what that thing would be that they'd grab. But the point of the question is to see what it is that we truly cherish. Because we protect what we cherish the most. Uh, Here's another situation, unrelated. How many of you have ever had someone in the car kindly remind you of your speed as you're driving? How well does that work when they kindly remind you of your speed? Maybe, maybe for a little while, right? Maybe you slow down for a little little while. For us, it would be the kids probably that say, hey, what's going on there? But if things tend to be the way they might tend to be, that the speed might creep back up slowly, right? Go back up to where we were before. However, what does everyone do going down the highway when there's a police officer parked in the median? You see all the heads lurch forward as people slam on their brakes, right? Even when they're going the speed limit. It doesn't matter. They're going to slow down. Why? The person in the car sitting next to you can't do a whole lot about your speeding. But that person in the car in the medium sure can. They can do something about it. We tend to obey who we fear. We obey who we fear. So we protect what we cherish the most. And we obey who we fear the most. Let's keep those things in mind as we look into our passage today. Last week, we learned about the grace of God in calling Abram out of his life of idolatry and into God's blessings and promises that he had made to Abram. And remember, God was the hero of the story last week. And God will be the hero of the story this week. And the story, the hero of the story every week. And God's going to be the hero of the story of our lives too, isn't he? Amen? God is the hero. So God had made these promises, and then Abram then obeyed God, and eventually entered into the land of Canaan, which is, of course, modern-day Israel, and everything went swimmingly from then on, right? For Abram, everything was sunshine, rainbows, pots of gold, happy fluffy unicorns, perfect. Except that's not true. (laughs) It wasn't that way at all, actually. So, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Here's the first sign of problem. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And the the word sojourn conveys the idea of a temporary stay. So Abram wasn't, he wasn't intending to stay in Egypt forever, okay? He was not abandoning the promised land or God's promises necessarily just by spending time in Egypt to go buy food. You might want to like jump on Abraham already and say, oh, what are you doing going to Egypt? But he was was going grocery shopping, okay, with the intent of going back. That's basically what it was. Verse 11 says this. When he was about to enter Egypt, so they're not even in Egypt yet, he said to Sarai his wife, who was Sarai? his wife I know Abraham says to her I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance what a sweet guy and he continues he says and when the Egyptians see you they will say this is his wife whose wife Abram's wife and then they will kill me but they will let you live That sounds unfair. (laughs) Remember, last week we talked uh, a bit about why it's not a good practice to simply say, be like Abraham. Uh, This is definitely one of those times where we should say, don't be like Abraham, okay? Uh, I wonder if this is the moment, too, when Sarah started to raise, you know, raise a single eyebrow and give Abram the look of death. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Verse 13, Abram says, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Uh, now before before we think there's a sliver of hope for Abram because he concludes this instruction to Sarah with the words for your sake, that sounds nice, right? But it's not. It doesn't mean what we would think or what we would hope it means. What Abram was doing was invoking the privilege of the brother to give away his sister in marriage if the father was no longer around. Does that make sense? The way it worked is if a father would come and his daughter's here, another man sees her and says, I would like to marry her, he goes to the father and asks for her hand. But if dad's not there, the next best thing is to ask the, <clears throat> the brother. That's right. So that's what's happening here. This was a, con, a common transaction that day. It was called the bride price. The bride price. And so Abraham, in saying for your sake, he just means you're going to save my skin. Okay? Not, not great. So if someone intimidating were to come and demand Sarai as their wife, Abraham would be able to live and get paid. Perfect. Sound good, Sarai? Okay, good. Let's go to Egypt. We've got a plan. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Notice the word choices here, this this change of wording for emphasis. The beginning of the verse, when Abram entered Egypt, it makes it sound like Abram entered alone. It doesn't say when Abram and Sarai entered Egypt. It just says Abram. And who did the Egyptians see? The woman. The woman. What has she been so far in this passage? His wife. Now she's the woman. Okay? Uh, Before she was specifically referred to his wife, now she's just the woman. She's no longer his wife. It's like the writing of the narrative is helping them to hide, to stand under their cover. Verse 15 says, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, Uh uh-oh, they praised her to Pharaoh. They said to Pharaoh, this woman is beautiful. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram's plan was to go into Egypt and have this set up, right? But this wasn't just any Egyptian man that saw and desired Sarai to be his wife. This was the king of Egypt. Verse 16 says, And for her sake, uh, there are those words again, for her sake, as a bride price, he, the Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And this is how he we dealt well with him. This was the bride price. It says he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Does it look weird to you that the male donkeys were separated by the males and female servants, and then the female donkeys came into the picture? It's kind of strange, isn't it? That's on purpose, actually. Okay, this is going to sound weird. But there's a reason why the female donkeys and the camels are listed last. Okay? Female donkeys were considered superior to the males. Alright? Because they're less volatile. Therefore, they're easier to work with, more reliable for carrying things, and especially for transportation. So they're more valuable. Okay? And then camels, this is kind of interesting, they were being introduced at this time as domesticated, servile type animals. And so they were hard to come by in this condition. They were trained for work. So the fact that uh, Pharaoh gave Abram camels plural, not just one, but camels, was a big deal. It was a big deal. And so they listed it last. Uh, Abram, not that he wasn't wealthy already, but he acquired much wealth on that day. And he lost his wife. And uh, it's not too much of a stretch to think that one of the female servants, being that they're in Egypt right now, was a young Egyptian woman by the name of Hagar, which is going to come up later in the story, if you remember. Uh, But imagine Abram receiving these gifts from Pharaoh, watching the animals and the people walk before him, receiving a count of all that was there, taking this inventory, and knowing all along that it came at the expense of his wife. And yet, this was his plan. Now, did Abram plan out this far? Don't know that he assumed that Pharaoh was going to be the guy. Don't know that he wasn't trying to just buy time to figure out a way around the problem. But this was one of the possibilities of how things could go according to his plan, and now he's there. This is where he is. This was his way of preserving, of protecting, What was most precious to him? Himself. What a mess, right? Now, before we read on, have you noticed anything missing from this narrative so far? Who haven't we heard from or heard of yet today? What do you think? The Lord? Remember, God has promised Abram that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God promised that whoever makes light or disdains uh, Abram will be cursed and that whoever blesses Abram would be blessed. Do you think that Abram's relationship with Sarah, his wife, could have any part in that picture? Of course, right? Of course it would. I would think so. If someone were to mess with Abram and Sarah, I would expect, and we should expect, some kind of cursing, to follow close behind. So then let's see what happens when the Lord chooses to get involved. Verse 16 says this, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. And who is she now again? Abram's wife. Our faithful God has come and cursed Pharaoh's household as promised. Uh, by the way, was the king of Egypt too big for God to handle? Obviously not. And Sarai is all of a sudden referred to as Abram's wife again. God, get, God gets involved and things start going back where, they supposed, where they're supposed to be. And, and by the way, it would make sense that Sarai ended up being the one to tell Pharaoh's people what the source of the plagues were, because they wouldn't have known necessarily. it had to be told. Somehow, though, he found out. And had to reverse the curse. He had to do something to change what was happening to them. So Pharaoh says in verse 18. He called Abram and said. What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. He says now then. Here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh's being much more uh, honest about this isn't he? He obviously knows who Sarai is. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The pagan, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, rightly rebukes Abram. He rebukes him. Abram had sinned against Sarai. He had sinned against Pharaoh. And of course, he sinned against God. And Pharaoh orders his men get these two out of Egypt now. Get them out of here. Get them out of here. Don't even bother taking back everything I gave him. That's how badly he wanted them gone. So Abram walks out of Egypt wealthier than he walked in. And with his happy, faithful bride right there by his side. Or something like that. Hebrews 11 does talk about the faith of Sarai, too, doesn't it? Uh, And of course, never to make the same mistake again, right? Except he did. Turn to Genesis 20. Realize as we read this chapter, and I apologize for all the spoilers that you're about to hear right now, but in between Genesis 12 and 20, Abraham has seen God renew his covenant, he's seen the ministry of Melchizedek, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, he's seen a theophany of God, meaning he's seen God in bodily form come and speak with him to confirm the promise of the birth of Isaac within the next year, remember. And among other things, Abram's walk with the Lord, we would would assume, must be nearly flawless by now. But here's Genesis 20. Starting in verse 1, it says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb. Remember that's just the south of Israel, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned, and there's that word again. There's be a lot of parallels here. He sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. This is sounding eerily familiar. And Abimelech which that means my father is king, so he's at least the second generation king, Abimelech, king of Gerar, why has it always got to be the kings, sent and took Sarah. But God, this is very much the same story, isn't it? But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken For she is a man's wife. And now Abimelech had not approached her. Okay, so that tells you what didn't happen, what had not transpired yet. And by the way, if people were to debate that, even with the story of Egypt, the common practice was for if a woman were to be added to a harem for the king, there would be a time period up to a year of preparing or purification for the um, consummation of the relationship. Okay, so... Very, very likely that nothing ever happened to Sarah that way. That doesn't make Abraham better. <laughs> okay? But we we can know that. So he said this in verse 4. Now, Demalek had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, "Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. You've done this." God wasn't saying you're a really a great guy of integrity, but he was saying in this instance you didn't know. Okay? Abimelech had a clear conscience in this instance as it pertained to Sarah's availability, if we will, okay? And God said, "It was I who kept you from sinning against me." Isn't that amazing. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Is the king of Gerar too big for God to handle? No. God is able to prevent him from doing this act, from sinning in this way. And why? Why did God do that? Because he's faithful. Because he is faithful. He made a promise, and he was going to keep it. Again, God is the hero of this story. Verse 7 says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. Abimelech might have been like, huh? At that moment, right? He's a prophet? He's going to pray for me? And he says, and you shall live. If you do these things, you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the, the men were very much, what does it say there? Afraid. Remember that. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Again, Abraham is rebuked by a pagan king. And notice that the king Abimelech asked why Abraham had done this to us and my kingdom. He, Abimelech, is thinking about others under his rule and under his protection. Verse 10 says, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What were you thinking When you looked at us and saw who we were, what what was it that caught your eye that made you think you had to do this to us? And Abraham said, "I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. No fear of God. What did the men? What was true of the men earlier in verse eight? They were very much afraid." They were very much afraid. And Abraham continues his explanation. There's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abimelech and his people were afraid of God and so they obeyed him. Who was Abraham afraid of? Those people. The people. Remember, we obey who we fear the most. Remember, Abimelech used words like us and wanted to protect his kingdom. And Abraham says, they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, Abimelech the pagan was thinking of others and protecting those under his care. Abraham was thinking of himself and willing to cut loose, to cut loose the one who should have been the most significant person in the world to him. The first and the foremost under his care. And then it gets worse. The sad state of events here goes even further south. Verse 12. Besides, Abraham says. Not a great word to hear after somebody just giving an excuse for what they did. Besides. She is indeed my sister. Abraham starts to defend himself. At least I wasn't totally lying, right? She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. It's not like that. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he's my brother. Okay, first of all, yes, Abraham was Sarai's half-brother. Sarai was Abraham's half-sister. And no, you can't do that, okay? God, God made this practice illegal later on in Leviticus 18, so that's off, off the radar, okay? Second, second, did you see what we just learned in verse 13? This whole thing, he's my brother, she's my sister, was always the plan. This wasn't a two-time deal. This was always the plan. Abraham since they had left Haran told Sarah to use this lie to keep him out of trouble everywhere they traveled. So this means that up to this point counting between Genesis 20 and Genesis Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 Sarah had to be ready at least 9 times to go through this process. 9 times So the first time they went into Egypt, was that Abraham's first time saying that to her? When they left Haran, Abraham said that to her. He was just reminding her of the plan. Can you imagine? Over and over and over again. You might even think that there was like this idea of, well, it only went wrong twice. That's the kind of way we think when we're in sin, isn't it? Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. That's weird. He just gave him his wife back. And yet he continues to increase in wealth here. And he returned Sarah, his wife. There's those words again. His wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Abimelech is getting the idea. Those who dishonor Abraham get cursed. Those who bless Abraham get blessed. You did me wrong, Abraham. Why don't you just live around with us here? You can live wherever you want. Okay? To Sarah he said, Behold, and this is very cunning of him, Behold, I have given your brother (laughs) a thousand pieces of silver. And that, by the way, would have been the equivalent in that day of the price of 20 brides. Abimelech says, it is a sign of your innocence. Whose innocence? Sarah's. In the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you, Sarah, are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Why Abraham? Who seems to be the more righteous individual in this narrative? Why Abraham? Why is Abraham the one praying? Well, because God chose him for that task by the grace of God. So we've seen quite a bit in these passages you have seen quite a bit. And before we talk about anything else, I want to ask you this. Did Abraham look like he was better, holier, more righteous than anybody else in these passages? Correct. <laughs> Not that Pharaoh or Abimelech were any better than Abraham either, right? Uh, they had their own issues. We all do. We are all sinners. And that's my point. Why did Abraham become who Abraham became? Why did Paul, in the New Testament, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, why did Paul become who he became? And remember, he was actively persecuting Christians. Here are two verses. For by grace, unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, faith, is not your doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you are a Christian today, and walking with the Lord, and looking forward to heaven, and an eternity with Him, it's because God is gracious. Because God is gracious to you. Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that we could never have lived Jesus took the wrath of God on himself at the cross that we could never have exhausted on our own. The Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes and our deaf ears that we could have never repaired on our own. And God gifted us with the faith that we would never have sought after if it wasn't for his grace. No one seeks after God, Romans says. You see, we don't have to try to be like Abraham because we already are. Sinners saved by grace. Amen. If you're hearing this today and realize that you've been putting your trust in your own efforts to be religious, to, to be a good person, to be better than most of the other people around you, or if you're hearing this for the first time ever today and you've never heard this message, the gospel before, please repent. Confess your sin to the Lord. Ask for his, his forgiveness. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ, make him your Lord and be saved. Romans 10 says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. Call on the Lord for your salvation today. We also learned today that we protect what we cherish. And that's not something that we have to be trained to do, is it? We just do that by nature. Uh, The question is, Who do we cherish? Who are we to love the most? I believe the two greatest commandments answer that question for us. Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That just means all of you. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, It says there's no greater commandment than these. Love the Lord Cherish the Lord. Love your neighbor. Now, how do we protect what we cherish in relation to loving the Lord? He's God. What would that look like? Well, do I protect time with the Lord? Do I protect that time? Time in His Word? Time in prayer? Do I protect the integrity of His Word? When others misuse Scripture, does it concern me? Does it bother me? Do I seek to help others understand the truth that will set them free? Do I protect the integrity of his holiness? Remember, God doesn't need us to protect him, but but does it bother me? Does it bother you when others make God out to be like the equivalent of a genie or or a boyfriend? Or a grandpa who doesn't know how to say no? Or a dad who won't ever discipline? We have all kinds of thoughts about who God is, and, and unless it's the right view, it's a wrong view. Do we protect what we cherish in God's holiness? And realize, we can't misuse God. We can't mistreat Him. And if a person were to do those things, it would also be to their own detriment, wouldn't it? So what would love of my neighbor compel me to do in these situations? And that's where our hearts are revealed. If I fear the Lord... And love my neighbor, I'll respond one way. And if I love what I think God can or should do for me, and if I fear my neighbor, I'll do something totally different. Does that make sense? If I look at God the way Abraham seemed to look at God in these passages, and if I fear people, my response is going to be totally different than if I fear and love God most and also love my neighbor. My motivations will be totally flipped around. Totally flipped around. Because remember, we obey who we fear, and we protect who we cherish. Abraham didn't have Ephesians 5, but we do. And it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved his bride, the church, and and he was willing to drink the cup that the Father had for him. He was willing. And Christ gave himself up for her, for us. His blood covers us. His righteousness put to our account. Jesus was the bride price for the church. Jesus Christ knew of the resurrection He prophesied of it, didn't he? He told the apostles that was what was going to happen. He said, this is the sign that you're going to get. There's going to be a resurrection. I'm going to rise from the dead. He knew of the glory to come that God had promised. And he willingly went to the cross. Abraham had the promises of the unchangeable, all-powerful God. Did he need to be scared of Pharaoh? Did he need to be scared of King Abimelech? Was God not big enough to bless those who blessed him and curse those who dishonored him. And instead, Abraham, in these situations, in these instances, feared these men, cherished himself, and in his wrong thinking about who God is, trusted in his own cunning, his own scheming, his own planning over the wisdom and promises of God. And wouldn't you know, in the midst of all that? Abraham never built any altars to the Lord in Egypt. The first half of Genesis 12, Abraham's building altars everywhere he goes and calling out to the name of the Lord, proclaiming the name of the Lord to all of the peoples that were around and heard. That never happened in Egypt. Abraham never did that there. He was busy covering himself when God had already promised to do so. And you and I are not Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is for Abraham. But God has made promises to us in his word. And that's where we go to, right? The promises that God's made to us in his word are far more than enough. Promises like this. No one will ever pluck you out of his hand. John 10. When he started in you, the work in you at your salvation, that work that he started, he's going to be faithful to complete it. It's not going to go off the rails. It's going to be done by his doing. That's Philippians 1. Everything, everything that happens to you, he's going to work it out for your good to make you more like Jesus. Romans 8. You will never be tempted beyond your God-given ability, and he will graciously give you the strength you need to endure all hardships. 1 Corinthians 10. He will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13. In whatever condition you're in, in whatever state you're in, you can be content, peace, rest, and do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4. To be absent from the body, even in death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. And one day the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will wipe away every tear from our eye and everything that is wrong with us, everything that is wrong with us, everything that is wrong with this world will be gone when God makes everything new. Revelation 21. Do you believe those promises to be true? Do you believe them? Do you believe in the perfect, infallible character of the God who made those promises? Because that is what is going to make us cherish him, to delight in him. Not just a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of a mentality, but who God is and what he will do. When we understand who God is, we cherish him. And we fear him, not wanting in any way to disappoint him. And that's when we start seeing people as souls who need Jesus. And we're willing to tell them the gospel. That's when we are willing to be seen as weird at work, when we don't cut corners or cheat on numbers or projects, and when we don't put ourselves in difficult situations with members of the opposite sex, even when everybody else might mock us for it. That's when we as teenagers and young men and young women and even older men and older women have the courage and respect to say no to our boyfriends or girlfriends who are making advances and don't seem to understand that we are loving them more by pursuing purity. What gives us the strength to do the right thing? What do we cherish? Who do we fear? Then even in the heat of the moment, when that water bottle's getting squished, when our heart is getting squished, the right thing's going to come out if the right thing's in there. Who do we fear? Who do we cherish? Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. God is holy. God is perfect. He is righteous in everything. He is all-powerful. And God is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our fear, our reverence. And He is worthy of our love. And when He has those things... When he has that place in our hearts, it gets so much easier to make decisions, even in the heat of the moment, because when we believe that he is worthy, what we want most is to be pleasing to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today because of who you are. God, help us. God, where we might be uh, deceived, where we might think too lowly of you, which would be really easy to do, God, help us to run to your word and believe what you tell us about yourself. God, where we have not put you in the highest place in our heart, where we have not been in awe of who you are and been in reverence of you, God, help us to repent and to see you rightly and to know that even in our own thinking and our own uh, ability to consider these things that you're bigger than that. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we get to see Jesus face to face. And I pray that you'd help us to know that that's going to be an awe some moment. It's not going to be like old buddies seeing each other and doing a secret handshake. And we thank you for how great you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts that we would love you dearly. That we would love you supremely. That we would cherish you above all things. That we would have a holy and right fear of who you are. And God, we thank you that Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden could come to you. Let you be our master and that would provide for us rest. Lord, help us to walk in faith and not just in sight looking at the things around us and the people around us. Lord, help us to see the people around us as, as souls who need Jesus and not as people who might make our day more uncomfortable. God, may walk in faith in that way and bring glory and honor to your name and be pleasing to you in all that we do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.